Hello and welcome to the 21st Century Leadership Podcast. I'm Brett Sadler and in this series I'll be exploring how leaders need to respond to the challenges and changes of our times. For over a year now I've been recording conversations with top leaders and leadership thinkers and throughout this series we'll be delving ever deeper into some of the profound shifts that are going to shape the new leadership landscape in the years ahead. We start the series with a fascinating look at some of the big geopolitical trends with former White House advisor Dr Pippa Malmgren and Chris Lewis, founder of an international digital and PR agency called Lewis. Together, they wrote the 2019 Business and Leadership Book of the Year, The Leadership Lab, Understanding Leadership in the 21st Century. I first heard them speak about 21st century leadership at the RSA and loved the clarity of their thinking. So I made the trip to Chris's offices high up in Millbank Tower to do this recording overlooking the Thames in the spring sunshine. Stand by to hear some brilliant thinking, original concept, and enjoy their great sense of fun. Oh, and anyone who quotes Frank Zappa is all right by me. I was really inspired by some of the thoughts that you were putting forward in your RSA talk. And so that's what encouraged me to get in touch with you and uh, to have this conversation today. So really interested to learn a little bit more about both of your backgrounds and sort of how you how you came to be where you are now, what, what, what gave you the experience, knowledge and insights to um, be able to come up with some of the concepts that are in the book and that you've been talking about. Well, we've both written bestseller books previously. Um, Pippa had written uh, uh, a book on, on economic, popular economics uh, beforehand uh, called Signals, yeah. which I was a great admirer of. And I'd written a book called Too Fast to Think, which was about creativity. Mm -hmm. And we happened to uh, to meet uh, at an event with a mutual friend where we were both surprised at how nerdy we both were. Um, (laughs) And I I still remember the specific moment, which was uh, we got into a deep discussion about Powell and Pressburger movies and uh, avant-garde movies um, from the 19th. 40s and 19, 30s, 1930s. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and having just, uh, just discovered that we were, we were quite nerdy, we thought that the conversations were escalated uh, from there. Um, and we alighted on the, the idea from the Leadership Lab from, um, f- because it was a, an organization that we wanted to, to create first and foremost. And, and it, it stood for the Lewis Advisory Board. And we went around the world and we interviewed a large number of leaders. Um, so compiled in this book, the testimony of many leaders from many walks of life all over the world. We went to Singapore, to Amsterdam, uh, to um, uh, multiple locations in the US, and we asked people, really the quo vadis of leadership. And what we got back was was fascinating uh, in terms of the state of the art and also what people could see coming uh, over the horizon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And well, and the fact is, both of us have been advising leaders around the world for a long time. You know, I've worked in the White House a couple of times and been advising the government here. Um, Chris advises many leaders, both in politics, but also in the world of community, religion, uh, business. So we started to chat about how is it that we're having so many failures of leadership, so many crises occurring across multiple sectors, right? It's not like it's only in politics. It's happening in business. It's happening in the religious community, local communities even. And so we started to confer about 
what is it that's causing this quite universal breakdown of leadership? And concluded on the back of these interviews that we did with leaders everywhere, that part of the problem was that by the time you get to be a leader, you start to be quite out of touch with what's actually going on, mm-hmm. right? The higher you go, the fewer people you're relying on because you have less time. And those people are probably your age and have your same similar limited view of reality. Mm-hmm. And so we thought well, what we really need to do is write a book that improves what we call the situational awareness of these leaders to get to the point where they have situational fluency, that they can actually understand how the landscape has changed But in order to get there, we also discovered that there were certain skills that were lacking. So, for example, 20th century leaders, which is, you know, our age bracket, you know, people who are now in their in their 50s and 60s, which is the typical leadership bracket. They've been trained in a world where they've been told numbers are where the answer is. If you're if you're more analytical, you will just dig deeper. And there the answer is somewhere in there. But actually, the analytical is not working. And we can see that, right? Because people miss Brexit, they miss Trump, they miss populism, because that didn't show up in any analysis. Where it shows up is in what we call the parenthetical. So if the analytical is about digging down into the numbers, the parenthetical is about looking across the landscape, connecting the dots, um, not just measuring the math, but understanding the mood. And so the book was heavily about how the skill set of our leaders needs to change. And they're not very good at parenthetical thinking. So this book was a guide for how to think in this new 21st century environment. Right at the core of that uh, analytical mindset is the way people are educated still through primary, secondary and tertiary education, which is the the process of Mm -hmm. Western productionism writ large. Mm -hmm. There's a right answer. It's at the back of the book. And Ken Robinson, so Ken Robinson uh, and uh, and I had been friends for a while. He wrote the forward on oh, Too Fast to Think. And we were talking about how damaging that process was, that it actually led to the belief that that the this right answer syndrome was that the person that could get there first and have the most information and most data could then produce the right answer. However, living in a paradoxical world, there is not just one answer. There was actually several, and one of the messages that we saw very clearly in, in this leadership uh, uh, analysis that we did and uh, study of these people was that there was a tendency to predict one outcome based on data mm-hmm. rather than prepare for all eventual outcomes. Mm-hmm. And so this created a mindset of there is one infallible person, and and we could see that that was linked to a Judeo-Christian model of of infallibility in a single leader, uh, often male. And if we if we went back into the past, we could see you know, the direct line of sight between uh, Jesus Christ and Moses uh, down to Steve Jobs and Elon Musk as infallible leaders, sing, often single male with a, a right answer for everything. And one of the things that we that we saw is the vulnerabilities and dangers in that because when we looked at the multiple levels of failure that we've seen, say, for instance, in the Catholic Church or in financial scandals such as Bernie Madoff or in the collapse of the financial system, people just didn't have the imagination to even conceive that this might be going on. Well, and, and this is why we say <clears throat> leadership in the 20, 20th century was about the leader. And in the 21st century, it's about the ship. 
it's not about the, you know, Jesus Christ at the head of the company who has all the correct answers or the head of the government or the head of the whatever organization. It's about how do we harness all the skills and capability and imagination of all of the people on the team. And that's a totally different way of working than most of our leaders have been trained to even think about. And, and we didn't want to do a book really that was just about the philosophy of, of leadership because the most simple tool of harnessing that ab ability within the team is the other four words, what do you think? Mm -hmm. and, and that means that you have to be prepared to listen to other people. You have to have two ears and one mouth. And often the leader is not the smartest person in the room, as they've been brought up to believe, because uh, if they're the smartest person in the room, they're probably in the wrong room. <laughs> exactly. the, leader's, exactly. yeah. the leader's job is to make everybody else feel like they're the smartest person in the room. Exactly. Uh, the orchestra conductor is not the person that plays the violin the best, or <laughs> bangs the drum the best, or plays the woodwind the best. Yeah. It's the person that can get the best out of the, of the team. And this notion of the hero is something which we feel uh, uh, is worth examination because it is inherently biased. <clears throat> It's in, inherently unequal as well, and it's inherently dangerous mm -hmm. and leaves great vulnerabilities in leadership groups. Absolutely. And so, so we kind of know the answer, but the, the question is, how do we get there? So we know that we should put engagement at the front of the process, not at the middle, so that it's not for the leader to come up with a strategy and then sell it. It's mm -hmm. actually for the leader to inquire and for the strategy to be co-created um, so that you automatically have to buy in and people just get get on with the, the work. Um, so so we, we know that that sh is how ideally we should be operating for maximal effect effectiveness. How do we get from where we are at the moment to a paradigm where that becomes the accepted norm? Well, I think we, 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 start, we start off with a very simple principle, which is that of an attack upon certainty. Mm -hmm. which is that, that we believe from all of our studies and all of our discussions that the only provenance of that type of certainty in the 21st century is mediocrity. Because when we're looking at, at the, the, this notion of the 20th century leader, they were certain about everything, uh, their will became law. And one of the things that we can see now is there is just no certainty. Uh, because we live in, some, in, a, in a world which is much more interconnected and therefore the ability for people to perceive something as being true as opposed to actually being true those things can be can be very far apart and we see these paradoxes now such as uh, in taxation some people believe that the large tech corporations are avoiding taxes of course you know that may be a perception about they're not paying enough tax but legally of course they're not uh, we also see the same thing in key uh, uh, key economic measures like inflation, we're told it doesn't exist, but but Pip has written extensively about why it does exist. Yeah. And people feel that their cost of living is rising, even if the data isn't telling them so. But I think the key to our book is really one simple concept, which is about diversity of thinking. It's back to the point of certainty. Since we can't be certain, the point is we have to entertain lots of possibilities. So whenever you are in a conversation and someone raises a possibility, as, as for example, I've done in recent years where I said, excuse me, but I think that the public might vote for Brexit. The response that I got was, don't be ridiculous. What kind of, who let her in the room? That's insane. And then, well, it turns out. So the question is, why are we so dismissive 
of possibilities. And this is crucial because once you begin to open yourself up to diversity of thinking and you move away from prediction and now you're focused more on preparedness for a a range of outcomes that you can't predict, this opens the door to many other things. Now, most people focus on diversity as a gender issue, and we do go into that in some great detail. But it's not only about diversity of gender, it's also about diversity of how you think. Exactly. Diversity in terms of neuroplasticity, the way in which a thought process occurs, which is why lots of firms now are starting to hire people who are definitely on the spectrum somewhere because their problem solving is very different. Um, diversity in terms of what's your personal background, what's your educational background. You know, I, I talk to so many CEOs who say, I'm really worried about populism. And I said, well, that's very interesting. When is the last time you hired someone who didn't have a college degree? Well, we never hire anyone who doesn't have a college degree. And I'm like, okay, well, then that means you automatically are saying, what, 30% of the population is excluded from the corporate workplace. Wouldn't you be mad if you were automatically excluded? Because those people, you know, the fact they didn't go to college is probably not fault of their own, but life circumstances. So... Once you start to open yourself up to diversity of thinking, you open the door to many different people than you had surrounding you before. And that really is an essential part of how do we practically get from where we are today to where we need to be. Mm. Yeah, I think that 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 is one of the crucial things about diversity. Uh, As you say, it's not necessarily about having the minorities represented because True diversity, you can't actually see. True diversity, you can't actually see. Actually, that's why I say, and Chris asked when I say this, but you know, as a woman who's been involved in politics and business, I get asked to sit on boards of directors quite a lot. And it's really funny because as a woman, I can feel when they're trying to tick the box and what they're really looking for is a man in a dress. Yeah, exactly. Right? And yeah, I'm like, yeah. no, if you want me, I'm going to bring all my stuff to the table. And that means a lot of thought process that... We can debate about what is feminine thinking versus masculine thinking, and we can create a lot of, you know, reader kerfuffle about whether there's any difference. But I think that there is some difference. And in the book, we do talk a lot about, for example, chief executives of of corporations who spend a lot of time focused on the profit and loss, the bottom line, and make decisions on that basis, which I would describe as a very masculine thought process, typically versus the other end of the spectrum, which is where compassion and empathy reside. And actually, true leaders, male or female, they're good at that too. And that's where brand value comes from, right? The trust in a brand of any kind, whether it's company brand or government brand, that comes from empathy and compassion. And what we really need are more leaders, both male and female, who can play that full keyboard instead of just chopsticks at one end of that (laughs) keyboard, which is what we've had. Yeah. I think uh, at this point, we'd also like to give a shout out to another another book, um, which was by uh, Thomas Premisik, a professor at UCL. He wrote a fantastic book called yeah. Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders? And the central premise of the, of the book is something that we saw echoed in our field research, was the correlation that companies have with competence and confidence. So the, the confident man uh, is often perceived as being more competent, having more skills. And one of the one of the bits of research we, that we pulled out and illustrated was the fact that men would apply for a job when they had thirty five percent of the of the skills, 
And women would only apply for a position when they had upwards of 80% yeah. of the of the skills. And this was also backed out in our own anecdotal uh, research, which is, uh, uh, we often tell the story of sitting in a, uh, a car rental lot and seeing the way women rent cars and the way men rent cars. Mm-hmm. And, and women would come into the, the into the lot, often with children. They'd walk, they'd do the paperwork, they'd then walk out to the car, they'd walk around the car, they'd put the children in the car, they'd strap them in, they'd get into the car themselves, they'd adjust the seat, adjust the mirror, adjust the steering wheel. They would then start the engine, let the engine run a little while, look around very carefully, put the car into gear, look around again, and then pull away. The, the men would walk straight over to the car, get in it, uh, start the engine and floor it, often squealing the wheels as they went out of the <laughs> red light. And we thought this is an excellent you analogy. You know me so well. <laughs> <laughs> See, they'd work out, work out where all the cripple worked when they were out on the, on the road at 70 miles an hour. And, and, and the, the, we don't make any judgment about that. We just say, you know, who do you think is safer driving the car? Hmm. Oh, this is actually a key point back to practical things that we can do. Um, that research that Tamara Probuzic did is so extraordinary, this confusion between confidence and competence. So, for example, how do we hold meetings typically? Usually, whoever talks first and loudest wins. Well, actually, this means that you're giving all the airtime to the blowhards in whatever organization you're in, and the quiet voices, which are often female, but not exclusively. It may be others, or maybe men who have a quieter view. They don't say anything. So if you hold meetings based on equal time, everybody gets five minutes, then the quiet ones are forced to say something. The blowhards are forced to shut up, and suddenly you get very different outcomes. So we tried throughout the book to provide quite literally little boxes of tips of practical steps that you can take to improve your diversity of thinking. And that would be one of them, to just change how you hold meetings. Mm, so the, the leader speaks last, you know, timed contributions, yeah. uh, making sure that people have had their say and that, and that, and that, peop- that, 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 that chairs of, of meetings would ask what people's anxieties were, because that was often one of the defining characteristics, which led to this imagination that people could see things that perhaps other people couldn't. They were worried about things that other people weren't worried about, the perceptions. And so, for instance, you know, we think that one of the, one of the key factors in all of the cases that we've seen with Volkswagen and the emissions scandals, with the banking scandal, with the Catholic Church, with Oxfam exchanging aid for sex, is that there was a complete absence of uh, any feminine thinking, uh, if not feminine people, in the leadership environment. And we think that these scandals may have come or been identified earlier if somebody had been articulating their anxieties and concerns about what was going on. They weren't short of data. They knew it was going on. It's just that nobody was prepared to, to, to recognize it as a strategic threat. Mm. And I think also when things like that are going on, the difficulty of addressing them sometimes paralyzes people. And mm. so that rather than addressing them they just hope that they'll go away or just pretend that they're not even there that the numbers whilst they might indicate that it's probably not really happening to the extent that it it would suggest for example um so so there's this process of denial and i i think you know we see that in all sorts of different ways it's manifested in large corporations for example in their 
belief that their existing model will con continue, that their belief that the market will continue as it is. Uh, so if you look at, for example, the automotive or, or the um, rail sectors, they are working towards a future that probably doesn't exist because they haven't stepped back and thought, well, we may be in the automotive business at the moment, but really we're in the people transport business. Mm -hmm. And what's the people transport business going to look like in 5, 10, 15, 20 years' time? So the tendency then is to preserve what they've got because they, they want to get a bigger share of the automotive market rather than reinventing the, the whole way that transport is done. Well, that's why we cite uh, the famous management guru, Peter Drucker, a few mm. times in the book um, on points that he isn't often quoted on. Uh, and so one of them is the question, if I weren't already in this business, if I were starting from scratch, how would I do it? And you should ask yourself this question every three years. And it's such a hard question because now you're committed, you've got all this infrastructure. But if you ask that question, it's much easier to deal with all these startups that are totally disrupting because they have nothing. So they're able to start with that clean slate. Very hard for big organizations to do it, but a wonderful discipline if they do. And the second thing we quote Peter Drucker on is a very profound issue to your point. Um, what's the purpose of you being in charge? Is it for your own aggrandizement or is it for something larger than yourself? And so Drucker always says, um, what is the social purpose of the entity that you're running? Because if it's a business, of course it has to be profitable. That can't be your reason for running the business because if it isn't, you're dead anyway, right? So that's a given. You've got to be profitable. But beyond that, what social purpose does it serve? And so often we don't ask this question. I mean, I came out of financial services and I was part of the banking world in the run-up to the financial crisis. And then and now, people in the banking world are not asking, what is the social function of the financial services industry? What part does it play in society? And without asking that question, they keep being like, wait, what? Why was anybody mad at us? Well, because your betting cost the whole society because we chose to socialize the losses and distribute them to the whole society while the financial services people got a bailout. And this creates an anger in society. So unless you can ask this question, then you're, you're still clueless about what's going on. This, uh, this is absolutely right. And, and this is where we we make that leap again from the philosophy down to the tactical level which is that most people attain leadership positions because they're very good at getting stuff done. Um, uh, I think John Harvey Jones from ICL once wrote a book, Making It Happen, and yeah. it was all about people that could actually do it, get it done. And we know leaders that have got to do this as long as your arm, and they keep on expanding, and they never really get to the bottom of them. And they, they talk about being overwhelmed, overloaded, trying to get too much stuff done at, at a, uh, on a daily basis. What I call the tyranny of do lists. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and we say in the book, where is the to-be list? Yes. There's got to be a to-be list of values that you exhibit every day and work your way through in a similar sort of Mobius strip of things to be done. Because it, it, unless the leaders are out there exhibiting those values, guess what? The organization doesn't have the values. And and this is the this is the point that we also make in the book, which is that the, the leaders are not, over, are not just overloaded, but it ceased to become fun. It ceased to become fun for them. 
And the F word is really important because we've seen in every organization that's been successful is that competence has followed preference. People get good at what they love doing. And if they love working with a bunch of people, they get really good at what they're doing. And if they're really good at what they're doing, they get paid more and it becomes a virtual circle. If we reverse that process and they go for, to make a lot more money, <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> if they're attracted to the if they're attracted to the money, then nothing on God's green earth is going to make them enjoy it, that process mm-hmm. because uh, it, it, it's trying to reverse it. And this is the thing that the leaders are there; they're, they're responsible for the culture in the organisation yeah. and whether people are having fun. And, and part of that fun is the ability to express themselves and, and, and understand that their voice is being heard. Mm-hmm. And this is what we found in a lot of the conversations with the leaders. This issue would come up in the form of them saying, um, I'm having a hard time getting the younger people to follow me. Uh, I can't get these <laughs> yeah. young people to stay in my company. They come and they practically interview me instead of me interviewing them. And then, and then they only stay two years and then they leave. And you're like, well, um, is it any fun working for you? <laughs> Maybe not. You know. And if it's not fun, why are they there? And they're like, work. It's not supposed to be fun. And this is like, this is the problem that you think it's not fun. It goes right back to education. I, I remember um, I, I was on the um, a parent board at the local college, mm. and uh, one of the things I was saying about making the lessons more fun and one of the others turned to me and said fun what's fun got to do with it you're, you're giving them false expectations life isn't fun you know you Ooh, shouldn't, yeah. like, think about oh, the, what? Think about the said, meaning sorry about it is for me yeah. but it's a it's, it's a very interesting notion this because it, it's a very much a, a left brain response it's part of the the problem and, and if you ask any of these leaders the million dollar question which is where are you and what are you doing when you get hit by your great epiphanies? You know, everybody knows that they get these great epiphanies from time to time. They get hit by a brilliant idea. And, and we identified that there's normally three characteristics. Overwhelmingly, people say that they're on their own when, they, when these ideas come. They often say that they're not at work. And even more strangely, they report that they're not even trying. Exactly. The idea comes to them. And this suggests, this suggests at the physiological level that there's actually a process that's going on which is slightly hidden from the analytical process, which is that of deep level processing, which only comes through when people are disengaged um, and they're, 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 they're at ease. Mm-hmm. And, and this is one of the things that we see that a lot of those people are not having fun because they're just simply assuming a linear process that they can work their body and their brain as if it was just a machine 18 hours a day. And and yet the provenance of all of these great ideas is, is very clear. And and it, this comes through that they're not allowing enough time to be able to, to play or to be in the zone to come up with ideas. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that, that really knocks onto the issue of sustainability and long-term thinking. Totally. Yeah. It's to the point of um, what do you do when there's a really big problem? Hold more meetings. <laughs> you know, but that's not yeah. where anything gets yeah. resolved. Yeah, go down the pub. Yeah. Play some darts or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but this whole question about how how we manage what's the operating environment goes even beyond these this kind of specific question in the book we we really tried to create a 360 view 
of the world to help people who want to be leaders, not just the current generation, but people who aspire to be leaders. It's very much an invitation to the next generation of leadership. And I personally feel that that's where we've had our greatest resonance. The current leaders are like, oh, yes, yes, I must must be more diverse. The next generation... Put it on my do list. Yeah, yeah. the next generation... <laughs> yeah, to-do list, right? No, not to be list. Exactly. The next generation are the ones who come up to us when we give our talks going, thank you, because what they want to do is displace the current generation and bring all their stuff to the table. And so for them, we not only provided some practical tools like don't hold so many meetings and give people a little more space to think creatively, but also to help them navigate the very dramatically changed landscape. And, and much of the book is devoted to back to this concept of situational awareness because what we found is a lot of people, once they get up into these you know, senior levels of management, again, we're talking about people who are definitely going to be in their 40s, 50s, and 60s, probably mainly 50s and 60s. They are often operating on assumptions that are quite literally a decade or more out of date. And century. You, yeah. And maybe a century yeah. out of date, some of them. But you can hear it because they'll say things like, all the jobs are moving to China. And you're like, you know, honey, that was true 10 years ago. But actually, the big issue now is the jobs are moving from China back to Britain and back to the United States. And the most dynamic, fastest growing economies, most uh, competitive locations are in Britain and the U.S. It's in the West again. And I know this because I'm not just an economist, but I actually have a manufacturing business. I'm in the robotic space. So I can see that China is literally lost much of its competitiveness. And this is partly why they're pursuing this thing called the Belt and Road Initiative, yeah. which is this massive infrastructure building project. They're building ports and airports and railway links and digital links all over the world, not just in Central Asia, but Africa, Latin America, Western Europe. And so many leaders are unaware that this is happening. They're like, oh, yeah, Belt and Road, that's, a, that's about Central Asia. No, that's about upgrading railway links in the United Kingdom. And, and nuclear and, power stations. And exactly, yeah. all sorts of things. So this problem of how do we take a person who's at a very senior level and really believes that all the jobs are moving to China and reorient them so that they are current instead of out of date? And that's really the, what the book serves as, is a guidepost to how to get current with reality. Yeah, I think that's really powerful because when we do strategy work with clients, what we typically find is that they are trying to plan a route from where they are now to where they want to get to. But where they think they are now is actually nowhere near. Right, they're, they're, exactly. <laughs> it's where they, where they were. It's like because as you say, the, the leaders, their, their perception is based on when they were working directly with customers and within the market 20 years ago. So it's completely out of date. Well, that actually leads me to a, a concept we introduce in the book, which is a compass. And that's just the problem. If you, if you don't have a compass, you can't tell where are you. Mm -hmm. And so we introduced this idea based on uh, a very ancient device called the Cathera mechanism. And it's a very interesting story. Um, Basically, in 1902, 1903, there was a shipwreck found off the coast of a little island called Cathera in Greece. And the shipwreck, they brought up a whole lot of stuff. And amongst that was a whole bunch of gears and cogs. It was a mechanism. And they put it in a museum because nobody knew what it was. It was made of bronze. 
but it definitely uh, dated, you know, well prior to Christ and well prior to the Bronze Age, in fact. And in about 1962, a nuclear scientist from the U.S. was on vacation in Greece, and he passes the display and does a double take and realizes that this is a machine. And he starts to study it. And in about five years, he concludes that this is the first analog computer that was introduced before we even knew we had the capacity to make bronze. And what the machine did is it told you not only when the um, uh, seasons would happen, when the next Olympic Games were on, when the summer solstice was coming, when you would have uh, different, basically, astronomical and astrological events. Now, we think the first computer happened when Babbage introduced the Jacquard weaving loom. You know, this is thousand years later. And so we decided, you know, this is important because what it sparks is this idea of imagination, that actually we may have the skills and capabilities to do things well beyond what we, we believe. And the Cathera mechanism gave us the opportunity to then talk about the, the new compass And as Chris has described, it's kind of a quantum super-positioned environment where you can be both right and wrong at the same time. For example, with communications, everybody's much more connected and, and interconnected, and yet there's less conversation. So how is it you can be so connected and actually disconnected in the sense that you're not conversing anymore? Information is exchanging but people feeling less connected simultaneously. And that's why we use that, that kind of metaphor of a compass to help us navigate in the new environment. Maybe you can elaborate a bit on the spokes on the compass. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that it, it flags up also is that, again, the paradox of the internet, that the internet was supposed to be a place where a thousand flowers could bloom. And yet it's become a place where there's no tall poppies. Mm-hmm. If somebody steps up with a really unusual idea, they can often be piled on uh, because it's radically different. And, uh, and the internet isn't something necessarily that encourages diversity. Mm-hmm. At the, in 1989 and 1990, when the Berlin Wall fell, we expected the wall was going to be much greater, it was going to be joined up much more effectively, and the walls would come down, we'd all be living without passwords, so there'd be a single currency, etc. But the opposite of all that internationalism and globalism has now given us localism and nationalism, which is an equal and opposite effect of that. So in the Cathedral, we talk about a light side set of effects. So one of the spokes is about how the internet is making things much more real-time, much more efficient. You can swipe right and get a new date this evening. Uh, you can uh, find out what the traffic is doing. You can trade stocks in real time. On the other side of that is a growing tide of anger where people expect the offline world to move at the same speed that the online world does. And unfortunately, the internet doesn't teach you patience. Making things even faster often erodes people's patience. And we're seeing massive knock-on effects to that in terms of uh, record levels of attacks on nursing staff or traffic workers or teachers, anybody that's in the business of applying patience. Uh, because now if you have patience, then you, you're a loser. And the internet is, is, is all about delivering instant gratification and instant effects. And these have big impacts on understanding the new psychology that leadership has to parenthesize and wrap around. You know, it's incredible. The, the studies show that if a web page doesn't load in three seconds, people move on. Yeah. 
So how much in real life can be delivered in three seconds? <laughs> Very little. Um, just to review, you know, this, this dark side and light side, I just think it's very interesting. So, for example, as you say, internationalism, that's the light side. But the opposite effect is the insularity. And you can have both happening simultaneously. Um, innovation, amazing innovation is occurring. What's the dark side? Incredible intimidation. People are intimidated by technology. I have CEOs in really important businesses, global businesses, and they'll say to me quietly, I don't really do technology. And you're like, I'm sorry, but if you don't do technology, technology is going to do you, right? It's not optional anymore. We have to get more comfortable with this, but it's hard for people to get comfortable with technology, partly because it's so fast moving. One of the revolutionary areas of the internet is, is, has been a consistent trend of disintermediation, mm -hmm. cutting out yeah. people uh, in between. And our thesis in the book is that this doesn't just apply to business. It actually applies to human relationships in general. Yes. And one of the th things we point out in the book is that now fully one in five of, of American male adults are not forming any form of relationship, same-sex or otherwise, uh, under the age of 25. And so this knock-on effect of coupled relationships in decline is seen all the way through the human populace. And the only people where, where people are living together under one roof more often is in the over 65 age group. Now, the knock-on effect is that it's multiple households, it's more isolation, it's more loneliness. It's actually an entire generation of men who are not forming relationships at all under the age of 25. And that's working its way through the demographics as we see. And we also see the effects of that in terms of extremism. The more isolated those people are, the more connected they can become with other extremists. Ooh. And if they if they if they're an extremist in their own community and it doesn't fit with the norms, don't worry, you can find another extremist somewhere around the world who feels just the same way. And so much of this uh, this extremism is being promulgated directly by the internet. And the tragic cases that we've seen, for instance, just recently in Christchurch after the the book was written, and in Sri Lanka after the book was written. Uh, point to the fact that the internet is being used to orchestrate these very events, if, if not even broadcast them live. How much of this uh, radicalism do you think is due to the fact that people in minority groups are not being listened to? I think it's, I think it's a real I think it's a real factor because uh, the, one of the things that that we see in this top down prohibitive process of trying to ban. Uh, people speaking is that it's not just the extremists who are banned from speaking it's the people who do not conform to whatever the conformity of that group is so for instance in the university system we're seeing a, a principle of no platforming going on uh, i think we've seen a number of individuals where they're not, not platform because their ideas are de deemed to be beyond the parenthesis of the conformist group now university is a, there's, a, there's a clue in the name. It's supposed to encompass a real liberal liberalism of thought. And there's a danger here in that these thinking models tend to be con tend to be confined to the analytical and the reductive and, and the emphasis on grades now and, and the emphasis on the right university. We've seen several cases in the US of people paying what amount of bribes or lying about somebody's credentials to get to an Ivy League university the fetish for that type of Western reductionism is now so overdone, people don't have the imagination to see that they could actually be successful in other areas. In, you know, We've both been successful in business, 
and we make the and we talk about the equalities argument in the book as being a matter of business efficiency, not just social justice. Of course, it's social justice, but it's a matter of business efficiency. And yet, the complacency that we've actually seen sometimes is that people have accused of, of, of virtue signaling yes, and, um, yes. and 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 <clears throat> and having inequalities agenda, as if somehow that was that wasn't what you'd expect from an entrepreneurial thinker. Well, and and there is a deeper issue here, which is I find very fascinating and troubling um, that we've all arrived in a place where we tend to think if someone doesn't agree with me they're either evil or an idiot and if you how, how can you possibly have a conversation with anybody and with reality if you come from that place and this is I think a, a really big driver and but it comes back to imagination and this is such a strong theme in our book I love the quote from Mark Twain the eyes can't see clearly if the imagination is out of focus. And there's, there's so little focus on how to build our imagination, how to envisage a different future, how to envisage uh, a person's human potential, instead of assessing them on what are they like right now. And we're in an internet age where how every one of us is, is increasingly, we have a digital twin that's forming in kind of a hyperspace based on all the data that's being gathered about all of us all the time. And HR departments now look at you digitally before they meet you in person. And that digital you reveals a huge amount, more about you than you probably know about yourself. And so understanding your own behaviors and how you're perceived. This is like a whole new operating environment. And I think this is something that people need to understand better. And we do go into detail in the book about that new digital operating environment. What are the implications and how this, either you're an evil or an idiot approach, it, it's simply inconsistent with the new digital operating environment that we're, we're now in. And it's, all, it's also an illustration of this Western reductionist binary thinking that says something's either wrong or right or truthful or false. And, and, and our point about the whole, the whole book is that we're not against uh, intellectual reductionism or an, an analysis. Nobody, I mean, an, econ an economist and a global business person couldn't be more in favor of analysis. What we're saying is that, is, is that it has to be used in conjunction with the parenthesis because unless you're dealing with people who, for instance, uh, who, who for instance want to know that the elevators are still working, they want to know that there's somebody at the top that actually can provide some form of emotional guidance to it. If you don't have those values and everything is driven by the stock market and by global capitalism, people won't just give up on the people, which is there's clear evidence that that's what they're doing already, but give up on the system itself. Yeah, which is what we're seeing, right? This whole business of everyone entertaining socialism or some third way it's a breakdown of confidence in the system and this is a quite profound event in history sorry yeah i was just going to say uh, i um always talk about the idea of systems inertia mm -hmm. so a system is designed to go through a process and to produce a certain result and the system's the vast majority of systems that are man-made are not organic. Uh, they don't evolve. They don't have mechanisms to respond to feedback from the operating environment. So they become out of touch. Yeah. And, and this is something that I find interesting and, and I was going to ask you about is 
given that the existing systems of government and business, uh, the process of leadership, have a paradigm that they're operating from, how can we ensure that what happened in our generation isn't repeated? Because I, I remember when I was younger and in the 60s and 70s, there was this real feeling of social convergence, uh, of economic con convergence, uh, and the possibility that we could all start basically with a level playing field. And then during the 80s, that's gone the other way, and it's now completely opposite. The difference between those the top 1% and the bottom 50% is bigger than it has ever been. And so looking at it from a leadership perspective, how can we encourage the young millennial leaders that you're talking about earlier, Pippa, um, that how, how can we encourage them to lead in a different way rather than emulating the way that has worked previously within that systemic context? Well, I do think one of the issues uh, is this income disparity, but we've had that through many centuries. I'm not sure that that's new. What I personally think is new, and we did talk about a bit in the book, is a different problem, which is the elevator doors are broken. And what I mean by that is, as you say, in the old days, there was an opportunity if you were not um, from a privileged background, you could get into university, you could be chosen for important roles, and you could move your way up the elevator to the top. And if you were at the top and you messed up, you definitely were sent down in the old days. But one of the events that happened in the financial crisis was we made a decision at the system level to say to the people at the top, you took extraordinary risks you that cost the society at large. And instead of telling you, you have to come down now, you have to pay the price for your failure, we actually wrote a check that was bigger than a wartime budget and we bailed them out. We basically rewarded them with free money. And I say that as a person who was a banker, you know, and so the people at the top, you know, it's a bit like saying, you know, capitalism without failure is maybe like Catholicism without sin, right? The whole system doesn't work if you're up at the top and you screw up and you get a blank check. So the message that we sent to society was those people at the top are protected even when they make massive mess ups. And in the meantime, what the system is doing is saying to people at the bottom, unless you have the right credentials, and we live in a very credentialized environment right now, unless you have the right credentials and the right connections, back to this scandal in the United States of people paying to get their kids into universities or pulling all those connections in, and only those people really get access to the top. This is the problem, because what's the point if, if the whole system excludes you from the start? Now, if you're one of the bright but underprivileged people, you're like, the system will never serve my interests, so I want a new system. Thank you very much. And so I think we have to fix the elevator door problem as well as addressing, I think income disparity will, will be much reduced if the elevator door problem gets fixed. And we have to recognize that leadership isn't just something that's practiced in cabinets or in boardrooms. Yeah. Leadership exists all the way through every aspect of society and at every level uh, within within the organization. In, in many instances, if you want the greatest examples of leadership, you need to look no further than a single parent family. You'll see more fiscal planning, you'll see more morale, you'll see more logistics, you'll see more planning 
you'll see more you'll see more vision uh, in those types of environments than you'd find in any cabinet or, or, or boardroom. Leadership is for everybody. And we have to recognize that, that all of this time we're studying the messianic, the, the infallible, uh, always right visionary leader. We're missing the obvious examples of leadership, which are all around us. Great leadership of people just simply saying, I will take responsibility. When people take, say, I will take responsibility, they're leaders. And we should be teaching it in schools. We should be teaching it in universities. And we shouldn't make it an exclusive club that leadership only belongs to those people with double degrees and, uh, and GPAs above 4.0. And this is enough. why we say in the book, you know, for example, corporate boardrooms, the board isn't a club. It's actually the conscience of the organization. You know, the same thing in politics. It's not a club. It's supposed to be the conscience of the nation. And we don't treat these these uh, organizations in this way now, but we should. So how do we transition boards to being the conscience of the organization when they are accountable to shareholders? Well, actually, those are not inconsistent things. Um, again, as a person who served on boards, asked to serve on boards, there are a lot of boards where you can tell in the interview process they would like you to come in like it's a golf club, like it's an invitation to a privileged position, but they don't want to actually say anything. I had one one major bank, one of the biggest banks in the world that considered me for their board, and they specified they wanted an American and they wanted a woman and they wanted someone with all the different bits of background I have. Like, there are like four people in the world who fit the remit, right? That We actually all know each other. And then they came back and they, the headhunter said they've decided not to pursue Dr. Malmgren. So we asked why, and they said, well, we asked around, and everyone said she's very collegial, and she's very bright and very well-informed. She'd make a great board member, but she might really want to know what is actually on the balance sheet. And they said, well, we don't want that. (laughs) And I'm like, you know what? That's not a board I want to be on. But this is how that happens. They're not looking for someone who's going to be a voice of diversity, uh, a voice that challenges the accepted thinking. Well, this is the problem. If you want to surround yourself with yes men, this is the problem. Yeah, we also need to recognize that, that, that again, we, we go beyond the corporation, we go beyond the, yes. the boardroom because the fastest growing entrepreneurial group in America is single black uh, of, of female leaders. And the, the group with the least access to capital is single black female leaders. Mm-hmm. And in many instances, these people are not creating entrepreneurial businesses out of choice. They're doing it out of necessity because they can't get the flexibility in the, in the workplace ordinarily. So these are the real innovators that it's necessity, which is the mother of that in, invention. Mm-hmm. The other thing about the shareholders is that the message to those shareholders is, do you not care about the system? Do you not care that it might be your wife? It might be your husband, it might be your son or daughter or niece, it might be your family that's being discriminated against and underperforming because the leader hasn't asked them about their real potential. The leader's job is to find the potential in the team and in the, in the, in the individuals. And the money, the, pro- the profits are a byproduct of that in the long term. If the shareholders that don't recognize that, they will not sleep very well. They'll be looking at the similar sort of uh, antics that we saw with the Apple share price, where it dropped 35% yeah. in in two weeks just before 
uh, at the end of 2018. Because if your if your price is maintained just by confidence and no fundamentals alone, then it's all down to sentiment, and then you go full circle, which is you can argue as much logic as you like around Apple share prices or tech share prices, but there is no doubt that the markets last week hit an all time high for reasons which are not really connected to the fundamentals. Well, and a lot of business leaders, corporate CEOs, are increasingly resisting the short-termism that we've had and saying we're not going to work to quarterly performance anymore. We're going to set annual or five-year targets and live with the consequences. And I think actually that's a great thing, that that willingness to take the criticism in the short term in order to achieve a longer-term vision. But what is that? That's leadership. That's bravery. That's a willingness to step away from how things are done right now to get to a better place. And I think the five-year plan or vision should be based on what kind of organization do we want to, to become rather than what should our turnover be or whatever. Yeah. Because that, that is a consequence of taking the actions to become the, the kind of business you want to be. Um, and, and I think what happens is when people focus on turnover, they start slipping back into incrementalism and, and trying to analyze it and say, well, where is this turnover going to come from? Who knows in five years' time what, what the market's going to be like? Mm. Far better to have an organization that is structured to, to respond and take advantage of opportunity rather than have a rigid plan that boxes everybody in. It's about aligning customers and shareholders, mm -hmm. right? Because, I mean, the idea that you serve the shareholders in the short term, but you sacrifice the trust of your customers, that's not sensible. <laughs> but lots, as you say, lots of companies have tried to do that. It's not working very well. well we have tried to put it as politely as we can. <laughs> were we polite? I think we weren't so polite in a lot of the books. Well, people are like, did you really say that? Well, it's, <laughs> the, no, the, notion, the notion that somehow success is always correlated with size is rather yeah. tantamount to an admission that we've become overly male in our perception of success. Mm -hmm. That size, everything must bigger be measured is by better. bigger and size, everything being measured by quantity and not by. Quality. Yeah, and, and there's also a huge amount of ego involved as well. And, and I think when you look at um, the um, acquisition and mergers market, you know, people pay vastly over the odds for companies because they have the ego need to do that deal and I'm going to get that company or whatever. Well, it's, 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 it makes no sense financially. You're absolutely right because the pressure sometimes on entrepreneurs and often from other shareholder environments which are overwhelmingly male in their tendencies, is that you have to be seen to be doing something. If you've got all of this capital, you must do something with it. Mm -hmm. You either do something or you or you have buybacks and, and give it back to the shareholders, but you've got to be seen to do something. And our point is, maybe one of the assessment criteria is not just what you do, but what you actually are. Yeah. yeah. And to, to be clear, you know, our book is not anti-leadership. It's anti-bad leadership. <laughs> you know, that there are ways of having really good leadership. Uh, but just being a leader is, is getting to the top is not enough. You need to turn the focus on yourself. What kind of leader are you? Where are you taking all these people who are following you? Is it a good place or off the edge of the cliff? Yeah. And I, I think still there's a lack of recognition. I mean, we can see it in things like even in the Me Too movement um, where, you know, the Harvey Weinsteins of this world 
like, wait, what, what? Of course, this is how things have always been done. Like, you know, not really even trying to say I didn't do that, but just was like, yeah. And <laughs> there's still a lack of awareness of what isn't appropriate. I, I was recently in a conversation about this whole subject and someone said to me, oh, no, no, but things are improving. And, and the issue of the President's Club came up. He says, well, things are improving. And I was like, the, the President's Club was only a year ago. Like, really? Things are improving? How long has the Me Too movement been going on? And a year ago, we're still having very, like, extraordinary events that there's a complete unawareness of how bad this is. So this is a thing when we say we want good leadership. That means we've got to get the leaders to understand what is the difference between good and bad. And a lot of them don't know. They literally don't know. And also, why are you still recognizing and going on about gender in, in key positions? So, for instance, overnight we heard that the new Secretary of State for Defense was Penny Mordaunt, has been appointed as Penny Mordaunt, who Excellent. wrote the, yeah. the forward to, to, uh, to the book. And yet, all of the news has been, she's the first female defense secretary, isn't it, isn't it wonderful, etc. Well, maybe she's talking about, is the first, the, she's the first reservist exactly. that's, that's, that's taken that position. So she, she's a serving military officer in the Navy. Maybe that's a more salient feature than the mm-hmm. fact that she has gender attributes, which has got her the job. Yeah. And so it's it's almost being said with, uh, with with surprise, as if that's some form of progress, rather than an echo of the same patronization. Mm-hmm. And and the, and you know, the press coverage you can always guarantee of senior female leaderships, particularly in a political environment, is, for instance, always full length. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so uh, the report of the speech may begin wearing an Armani suit. So and so said this. That would never be reported of a, of a male leader, mm-hmm. and the and the point that we're making here is is not that you know we don't applaud the, the progress that, that that's going on. It's just that there is still such a great deal of complacency a, a, around it, and we are ambitious and anxious and, and impatient to get to the stage where we're making the best of the people that we've got. And at the top, if you have those types of ladder climbers, they tend to look after the rungs. They tend to want to see other people with potential. And one of the great things that we see uh, around the world is that these organizations are, have enormous convening power. Mm. They have convening power to change society. Yeah. And they have convening power to bring about perhaps a more political effect of hope, of justice, of fairness, and also consequently of success through participation than perhaps the modern political system mm-hmm. has got. We have to work in these organizations. So these organizations should take on some form of a pluribus unum culture that make the, the thing that makes America such a successful melting point coalition of the willing. I think what one of the fundamental principles that is worth considering is the fact that people will only consistently do what gets rewarded. So if, if they see certain behaviours in, in leaders and people being promoted for doing the right thing, um, then they will then model those behaviours themselves. But all the time that people are being promoted based on their numbers and their performance rather than how effectively they build teams, how good, good the relationships they are, that they, they build with partners and so forth. Um, all, the, all the time you've got that old behaviour being rewarded, that's, that's how people will respond. So my, my, my question to you is, if I were a millennial 
stepping into the first senior leadership position, what would your advice be to me? What what should I do? Read this book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really? Okay. Seriously, read this book. Well, it's not just yeah. us that's saying it. Yeah. It's, it's now become business book of the year and leadership yeah, book of the exactly. year. Exactly. Well. We just won yeah, this so. amazing series oh, of wow. awards. So, I didn't realize that. that yeah. was, uh, it, it was business book of the year from the uh, from the BBA and also leadership book of the of the year. And we were, we were surprised because we thought, you know, uh, coming up with some of these ideas, we were kind of joining the dots and it's difficult to organise it in a Western productionist style because it's whole, the whole point is you need to join the And dots. be holistic, exactly. In, yeah. in answer to your question, it's not a dress rehearsal, this. Mm. Uh, and you don't come this way again. And, and so it's, it, my advice to them is this is supposed to be fun and it's not supposed to be an ordeal. And if you're having fun and it's not an ordeal, then maybe the people around you will have fun and it won't be an ordeal for them. And maybe they'll get good at what they do. And the other thing about it is that, that if they're having fun in what they're doing, they'll bear the stress much more easily. They'll make better decisions. They'll, more people will come to them if they see a problem. And we, and we see that the most accessible leaders, the ones that appear to have the most time and having the most fun, not the ones with the longest to-do list who have the most beetle brow, mm. those are the ones that hear people saying, iceberg, iceberg, dead ahead, boss. Yes. Mm. <laughs> yeah, well, I actually write about the, the Titanic and the butterfly, and the, the Titanic factor is very much about not looking at the iceberg and not listening to the people that are pointing out the iceberg. Yeah. And I, I think that if we view um, our systems as icebergs, you know, that unless we actually look at our systems and examine them and, and uh, repurpose them, then we will actually end up sinking. So. That, that to me is the fundamental requirement of the millennial generation is to redesign the systems that we have accepted uh, in our generation from our predecessors. For them, don't accept what we've done. Yeah, you've got to do better. Well, the Titanic was itself an, a, 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 an apogee of the largest moving object on yeah. Earth. Yeah. And they wanted to get across the Atlantic in the shortest possible time. Mm. Uh, for that, and the grandest again, possible. very masculine superlatives. I want to be the fastest. I want to be the biggest. Exactly. You know? But 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 interestingly, you know, the thinking that put Neil Armstrong on the on the moon was very much that of real imagination to plan for every available scenario. Mm. And we again, we talk about this at the tactical level. Uh, you know, if you if you look at look at a a, 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 a a female that goes out with children, they have a handbag. If you look into that handbag, you can see the contingency plan on a tactical basis. <laughs> exactly. yeah, yeah. There, totally. is, there is normally a three-stage ladder, exactly. a 17-course meal, and a Volkswagen Beetle in there, just in right, case, right. in an enormous Gladstone bag. But I love, you know, you're right about the NASA thing, and I think this film that came out, Hidden Figures, is exactly. so interesting, yeah. because what Neil Armstrong said in that crucial moment, when they weren't sure that they could get the spacecraft back to Earth, and his life depended on this, and he turned to what they called the computers in those days, which were black women who were such mathematical geniuses that they did all the computations. And he said, I'm not going up there until, I can't remember, I think it was Catherine Mansfield, who they've now named a wing of NASA after, and said, I'm not going until she says. And, and the empowerment of not just her, but this idea of a diversity I want not who is the appropriate person who's the head of calculation math here. I want the person who's 
best at this. And that happened to be her. And that's the world we need to be in where we're focused on the the right outcome. We want the performance and we want to get the best out of everyone to get there, not the people designated as the appropriate ones, but the ones who have the gifts. I think the, the questions here are, if, if what we're told is true, that by getting a master's degree and getting a PhD is going to make you such an, a profoundly skilled uh, analyst and be the success uh, of your life and your career and lead to all possible forms of contentment, why aren't modern organizations dominated by those people at the board level? Yes. Uh, why is it that, that so many uh, uh, experienced boardrooms value the, the, the skill of the team rather than just the individual with the most profound skills? We've all seen people who are profoundly skilled who are unable to either give credit to the teams that they represent or even to, to bring those teams together in a common, a common cause. And if there's anything that we most require from our leaders now, whether it's in business or in politics, any walk of life, it's, for God's sake, look at the things that unify us, bring us together again. Inclusiveness. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Not, not just ticking the box of diversity, but genuine inclusiveness. And one of the things which I find really fascinating is actually searching out the dissenters, finding people who disagree with me and trying to understand their, their perspective. Totally, totally. Then this comes up in other ways too. Um, again, as a woman, there's, I know there's a huge amount of discussion about mentors, right? Everybody talks about, you need a mentor. And there's a big debate about whether this is actually patronizing to women that they need some male mentor. I'm interested in a different concept, which is tour mentors. A tormentor is someone who, if you're any good at what you're doing, pitches up and starts to be an obstacle, starts to block you, right? Fights you. Now, a tormentor, nobody values tormentors, but actually they're very valuable because they are like a rubber stamp that says, you must be doing a very good job because this person is scared of you now. That's why they're going to fight you. And actually we have to face the tormentor and fight the battle and win. So this is another version of this same idea of don't just look for the people who are aligned with you. Look for the diversity of opinion, the people who hate you, the people who are giving you a story that you're like, I don't like this story. I don't want to hear these facts. Embrace that. Yeah. I think that's particularly interesting. We, we have a, another person that we've referred to in the book, Caleb Harper. Yeah. And Caleb uh, is the man that used to grow cannabis. Uh, in America when it was illegal and he, des and he designed his uh, machines which are hydroponic machines where he could program the optimum level of humidity and nutrition to make plants grow at the optimum rate and he cre created these things called grow bots and he, and, and he made all of the code open source and it was very disruptive very imaginative very disruptive and he did very well out of it and then somebody came along and said hey, I can give you my open source code for, for carrots or for lettuce or for broccoli. And before he knew it, he then had an urban farming movement around the world where people were growing their own vegetables perfectly legitimately. And now he's the head of, the, of a vast movement of people who are interested in using technology in order to uh, effectively create their own vegetables upon other people's coding. Now, one of the things that we see quite often uh, particularly in, in places uh, where innovation really thrives, is that these people who might be initially perceived to be beyond the pale, disruptive people, uh, awkward people, um, uh, noisy people, um, uh, people who are just not following the crowd and they're difficult to manage. Every organization says we want 
we want entrepreneurial flair. But those people that are out there, those people that, that are chalking the streets and bringing pot plants on to, to Waterloo Bridge and saying it's the Extinction re- re- Rebellion, those people are being classified as being beyond the pale and what do they know, why don't they get a job, all this sort of stuff. For God's sake, those are the people that are actually right in the, in the, in the vanguard of, of a movement which will become assimilated and they'll be the climate change entrepreneurs. They'll be the people that sequester carbon. They'll be the people that, that come up with a solution. I love uh, on this subject, Frank Zappa. Oh, Frank yes, Zappa put Frank it beautifully. Zappa. And he said, progress comes from deviating from the norm. You can't get progress unless you deviate from the norm. So this whole business of, of appreciating what we might call a deviant Right, the de- yeah. the people who deviate from the norm, and I try to all the time in the work I do. You know, I really do. I try to totally deviate from the norm. You know, I'm manufacturing commercial drones, and we do things. People go, "Why have you done it that way? That's not the way it's done." And was it because it works better, right? And this is really important. One of the things we talk a lot about in the book is what's happening in China with their social credit system, where they actually give every person a score based on their level of social compliance. And I fear that they're going to lose the competitiveness of that economy because you can't ask people to be fully in alignment with appropriate behavior. Oh, but when you go to work, we want you to be really imaginative and creative and and deviate from the norm. No, deviation from the norm is is a way, as, as Chris said, that's about being right? That's not a to-do list thing. That's a B. Are you a person that challenges the conventional wisdom? And we want those people. All, all, all profits are derived from dissent. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So um, just, just one thing before we finish. Uh, Pippa, you predicted the global financial crisis. Mm. You predicted Trump um, becoming president of the US. You predicted Brexit. What next? Number of things, and by the way, and I say, yeah, unpredictability <laughs> is a good one. Yeah, uh, yeah and what I say, predict, it's really interesting. Uh, I always think in terms of probabilities, right? That, and I saw the probabilities of those things rising and rising and rising. So I was prepared for the possibility, and when we got close, it was clear that actually, yes. So uh, we, it's a really important this difference between prediction and preparedness. My preparedness approach allowed me to capture those things. But I have to say, going forward, uh, here's one. Everyone I talk to is preparing for a meltdown. They're expecting the stock markets to collapse, the world economy to fall apart. I have the opposite view. And and I don't mean to be binary about it, I, but I do think we should be more prepared for the possibility of a melt up, that actually we're at the beginning of what is going to be bigger than the Industrial Revolution, that the speed and pace of technological change is so profound. And most people are worrying, will I have a job? Robotics and automation are going to replace my work. They may, but the nature of your work is going to change, and probably in a very good way. Probably you're going to be able to do things that you were never able to do before. So instead of being worried about losing the past, we should be focused on being prepared for the future. So I'm incredibly optimistic. I actually just gave a speech last night for the Sunday Times top 200 tech companies. And, you know, I say to that audience, 
don't prepare for a slowdown and how you're going to handle firing half your people, which is what they're all thinking about. I said, I think you should be thinking about how the heck are you going to keep up? I mean, even here in London, people complain, you know, we're in a bit of a slow period. I'm like, yeah, but you can't cross London in a taxi in less than an hour. You can't get a reservation in a good restaurant anymore because they're all booked. Imagine when things pick up, right? There's <laughs> not enough capacity. So again, you know, this sounds like an out, it's a way out of the market view, but that's my prediction is actually we are going to be working in a much more interesting way, doing cooler, newer things and more of it going forward. You know what? I think you've hit the nail on the head because I used to be quite involved in the sustainability movement and I kind of stepped away from all that because the messaging was so much about cutting back and having less. And as human beings, we are hardwired to avoid that. So we're never going to buy into a future that means having less, avoiding do doing things that we actually enjoy doing for the sake of the planet. We need to create a rich and vibrant future that works for everyone. We and, need to, and a world that, that has abundance, not scarcity. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Fantastic. So on that optimistic note, thank you very much, Pippa and Chris. It's been an absolute pleasure. pleasure. Really enjoyed Thank it. And we you. could go on all day, I'm sure. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. Well, wasn't that an amazing introduction to the series? I particularly like the idea that 21st century leadership is less about the leader and more about the ship. And there were so many other gems in there too. If you'd like to find out more, buy a copy of their book, The Leadership Lab. It's a fascinating read. Then there's also Chris's book, Too Fast to Think, and Pippa's book, Signals, if you'd like to check them out. Now let's look ahead to next time, where I'll be discussing how to lead an organisation that has an average employee age of only 28 with the UK chair of PwC, Kevin Ellis. And we'll be exploring the role of leadership in the fourth industrial revolution. With around a quarter of a million employees worldwide, you would expect PwC to have their finger on the pulse. You won't be disappointed. If you'd like to get in touch about any of the topics raised in this podcast, or if you'd like to discuss other aspects of leadership development and business strategy, just send an email to podcast at ukleadershipacademy.com. I look forward to hearing from you.